Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the word of God as we find the written of the apostles, reading there in the fifth chapter, beginning at the 34th verse. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, dear friends in Christ Jesus. And I say good morning, and I mean just that, because this is a good morning. We have prayed for rain, and God is giving the rain. And some of you said we've had almost two inches. And oh, how we ought to show our thanks and our praise to God for hearing the prayer, rejoicing for the privilege of thanking him come into church or to worship him as you, my friends, are doing by means of the radio. This is the day which the Lord has made. and We will worship him in gratefulness for his blessings. You've heard me say that today is the fifth Sunday after Trinity. And the text that I just read, taken from the book of the Acts, it tells the story about the twelve apostles being arrested and being placed in prison. And the reason for it all was this, that they had filled Jerusalem with the good news about Jesus as the Christ and as the Savior from sin. And the authorities had warned them expressly never to mention the name of Jesus, but because they did anyway, they were arrested, they were placed in jail, and the council had already decided that they were going to put these twelve men to death. And then they were brought before the Sanhedrin, before this high tribunal, and this sentence of death was going to be passed upon them. And then there arose up one in the council. His name was Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He was a very honorable man. He was a doctor of laws, the law of God, a specialist in the word of God. And he asked that the twelve apostles be taken out of the room for the time being, and this was done. 
And then he turned to this august assembly and he said, be very careful what you do to these 12 men today. Then he went on to talk and I suppose they wondered, what's this man Gamaliel driving? He said, now you remember, maybe they did and maybe they didn't, but there arose at one time a man with the name of Thutis. And you remember he wanted to be somebody and he had about 400 followers. But you know what happened? They put Thutis to death and his followers scattered. Nothing came of it. And they were wondering, what's he getting at? And then he went on and said, and then I know you remember that there was this one by the name of Judas who was the Galilean. He also wanted to be somebody and he got a following. But you remember they put him to death and his followers scattered and nothing came of that. You remember that. And of course, some of them had. Then he said, my advice to you, therefore, men, is this. As regards these 12 men, you hesitate to make any kind of a decision as regards them. Then he went on to say, now as regards what they've been teaching and their work, what they've been doing, regarding this Jesus business that you are so upset about, he said, after all, if this is of man, why, nothing's going to come of it anyhow. If this is something that men have simply hashed up and men have simply conglomerated and mixed up, nothing's going to come. And that's what he has said. I look at Thutis and look at Judas of Galilee. This was something that these men had concocted. It was from them and nothing came of it. So he says, my advice to you is this. Uh, you delay in making a decision. Now he said, if this Jesus thing that we're talking about, this business about this Jesus, if this is from heaven, if this is a reality, if this is true, he said, uh, there again, you can't defeat it anyhow. It's going to go on and we might even find ourselves fighting against God and that would be a very wicked thing and we don't want to do that. So he said, uh, my advice to you this morning, you the members of the council, you delay in any decision as regarding these men and you delay any kind of a decision as regards this Jesus business. And you know, down in history, this man has come down, this man Gamaliel, a brilliant man, an honorable man to be sure, a very sincere man. He has come down as the man who is known as the man of indecision. The man that if he were standing before you and me this morning, he would say to you and me about this Jesus business, he would say, my advice to you, friends, is this. You delay any decision. You just stall for the time being. You just wait. You just hesitate. Don't make any decision to embrace Jesus as your Christ and as your Savior. You just wait. Because he would say, after all, uh, there isn't any conclusive proof uh, that this Jesus business comes out of heaven, that this is reality, that this is really a fact. He would say, I don't know. I don't think we've got any conclusive proof. And therefore, my suggestion to you would be, uh, you delay any kind of a decision because we just aren't sure and we don't have the proof and the evidence that this is really this Jesus business of God, that this is truth, that this is reality. So take it easy, you delay. And yet Jesus Christ, speaking from his word to you and me this morning, he would say to me, I call upon you, uh, don't you be Gamaliels, don't you be men of indecision. Jesus would say, don't delay your decision as regards me. Christ would say, decide right now. You decide this day, decide this morning in your life, once and for all, to embrace me as your Christ and as your Savior. You decide now, and you may say, well, uh, 
this thing about Gamaliel sounds just a little bit more reasonable. It's a little bit more intelligent. It, it, it appeals to me as an intelligent person as being better advised because uh, we may say to ourselves, do we have conclusive evidence uh, about this Jesus business, that this is on the up and up? that this is on the level, that this has come out of God's heaven, that this is truth, that this is reality. You and I may say, don't we have a lot of educated people telling us today why we are already living in the post-Christian era? You don't know it, you and I, uh, but the, the show's over. Uh, Christianity's already done with, we are being told. We're going into a new era. And you and I may say, well, if that's what intelligence is saying today, and that's what the modern men who are Gamaliels are telling us, that this is already the post-Christian age, why the intelligent thing then to do surely is to say, well, Christ, we don't have enough evidence. You haven't given us enough certainty uh, that this Jesus business is of God, uh, that it's from heaven, that it's reality. But when Jesus Christ calls to your soul and mind this morning and says, don't you be Gamaliel's men of indecision. I call and I plead with you. You decide, make your decision now. Make it today. Make it this morning for me if you haven't done so. To embrace me as Christ and Lord Jesus would say to you and me, I assure you I have given you the most conclusive proof possible. I have given you all the evidence that you need in order to me be certain that this Jesus business, it's reality. This is truth. It came out of heaven. This is fact and that it's not a conglomeration made up by a bunch of kooks and saying, this is something from God. And Jesus would remind you and me in the first place that we have this conclusive evidence that this Jesus business is on the up and up that this is out of heaven and that it's simply not a fabrication of a couple of kooks saying this is of God. Jesus says, look at the Old Testament. You and I may say, well, what about the Old Testament? Well, let's look at it. Is this Jesus business simply something that a bunch of kooks have thought up and they're saying, now, this is what we've, we've dreamed this thing up and we've cooked it up and we've mixed it up and we're trying to palm it off as something that's reality? How about the Old Testament? Let's look at it. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden. Back in the Garden of Eden, 4,000 years before Jesus came, you remember, when Jesus talked to our first parents, Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, he said that he would put enmity between them, between thee and the woman, thy seed and her seed. And then he said that from Eve would come a seed of the woman who would crush Satan. He promised a Savior. 4,000 years. Here you have prophecy. If this was something conceived in the mind of some human kooks, what chance would there be of anybody prophesying that the prophecy would come true about 4,000 years later that there would be a seed of the woman? Let's come down another 1,000 years to the time of Noah. When Noah blessed his eldest son, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. He said, The Savior, the Messiah, would come Shem from your line. If this was something hatched in the mind of a man, human, what possibility would there be that such a prophecy would ever be fulfilled? Come on down another thousand years to the time of Abraham when God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation from your seed and from your seed will come the Messiah in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Here was a prophecy. Abraham, you're going to be the father of a nation and that nation will be a reality and from you will come the Messiah. 
If this is something simply mixed up and it was nothing but hogwash in the minds of a man, I ask you, what would be the possibility of such a prophecy ever being fulfilled? Come on down to Jacob when he blessed his son Judah down in Egypt. And he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Jacob said, when this seed comes, I prophesy, Judah, he will come from your tribe. And then we come to the time of Isaiah who lived 700 years before Christ came. And Isaiah said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah said 700 years prophesying that when he comes he would be virgin born. And Isaiah also said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David. It would be an eternal kingdom, and he would come from the family of David. And then there was Michael, who lived about 800 years. He prophesied, But thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah, is going to be born in Bethlehem. I ask you if this Jesus business was something that was a conglomeration and simply a fabrication in the minds of a man, what would the possibilities be that these prophecies mentioned in the Old Testament would ever be fulfilled? And especially when Isaiah said you would recognize him, he would be as a lamb going to the slaughter. He would again bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. And yet we come after 4,000 years and hear Moses writing as he did 1,500 years before Jesus came. He said, this is the way you're going to know him. And Christ came and he was the fulfillment of every one of those predictions, messianic in nature, and fulfilled them. You ask about evidence, this Jesus business, you say to me, why this is a concoction of man's mind, some kook, oh listen. The Old Testament gives you and me in its prophecy and fulfillment all the certainty and all the absolute assurance and evidence that you and I need that this just Jesus business is on the level that it's truth and reality. And therefore it's going to endure because Christ reminds you we've had 2,000 years. I know his own people are waiting for another Messiah. I know that they have rejected Jesus Christ as, again, the Messiah that was going to come. But may I say in 2,000 years, can you imagine anybody coming who would fulfill prediction of the Old Testament any greater than Jesus did? Do you know of any human being who could ever come into this world and be the influence on civilization that Jesus of Nazareth has been in 2,000 years? We say here's the greatest person that ever lived, the greatest life that was ever lived. Think of the influence of Christ in the literature and the arts and the sciences into our way of life. No man has ever lived. No man could ever live again who could ever be the influence on civilization and on the fine things that we enjoy. Like Jesus of Nazareth, we've had 2,000 years of it. And therefore, Jesus says, don't be a Gamaliel. Oh, he was a good man. He was an honorable man. Jesus said, don't delay your decision as, as far as embracing me as Christ and Savior. You've got all the corroborative evidence. You've got all the absolute certainty that you need. Uh, look at the Old Testament in prophecy and fulfillment. That ought to mean this. That in your life and mine today when Christ calls, don't delay your decision. Decide now. If you've never embraced me, Christ says, do it today. Make this your decision. If you and I say, on the basis of irrefutable evidence, on the basis of evidence that certainly is worth accepting, we will determine to embrace him as our Christ and Savior. Then it means that we will allow him to bring us to a conviction of sin, to a sense of our guilt and to an assurance that we are lost and damned, 
just as much as the worst sinner that ever lived. You may say to me, well, preacher, what was wrong with Gamaliel? He was a doctor of the law, an honorable man. Here was a very sincere man, a gifted man. He belonged to the Sanhedrin. He belonged to this tribunal. Here's what he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were holier than thou individuals. This man, Gamaliel, had no sense of sin. He was certain in all the studying of the law, the Ten Commandments, Gamaliel felt sure that he was keeping God's law, that he was not guilty. He had no sentence of death and hell on him. He didn't even realize that the first purpose of the Ten Commandments is to convict you and me of sin. People say, why is it that Christ, when he was here on earth, that he found joy in being around the public and the tax collectors and the open sinners, the harlots and the prostitutes of the town? Why did he eat with them? You know why? When he went with those people, they knew that they were sinners. There was no doubt about it. The tax collector knew that he was crookeder than a dog's hind leg. The prostitutes and the whores of the community knew that they had broken God's law. They had a sense of sin and they knew they were damned. That's why he went. You know, they have an advantage. Rather an advantage, those open sinners who slip show. Oh, not that Jesus is saying you ought to go out and sin and simply throw everything away so that, again, grace can abound. Paul says, oh, God forbid. But there's an advantage to the person who has gotten his face and his soul dirty, and everybody reminds him of it. In my ministry, when I think of the person who came to a tremendous conviction of sin, I have never seen its equal... Why? Because she was an open sinner, the one that sent for me. She was the harlot of the town and told me her story. She had gone to Earlham. She was an educated girl, two years at Earlham College in Richmond. But again, she had thrown her life away to the world. She lived with a man for 20 years who wasn't her husband. Then she turned to prostitution. Then she was diseased in body. No one wanted anything to do with her. She worked in a bar. And her language was filthy and it was horrible. And she said to me when she met me and asked me to come, do you think that you could say something over my grave that you don't bury me like a dog? And then came this cry, do you think God could have place in heaven for me? Do you think that Christ could forgive me? Let me tell you something. When you and I come to a conviction of sin, and I mean this, that you and I tell God, I'm just as damned as any dirty, low-down whore that ever lived, then that's conviction. But you see, Gamaliel didn't have. Until the time comes that you and I say, I'm just as lost, I'm just as damned to hell as the worst sinner that has ever lived. Then again, we're not going to have this experience that Jesus becomes a reality. Let me tell you this. Oh, I have people come to me and talk about sophistication and they, they're Gamaliels and they tell me, I, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. And then they like to use the big word, I'm a pantheist. Well, you know, that's supposed to impress you and me very much. Pantheism, pan is Greek for all and theos is God. In other words, he says, I don't believe in a personal God. A God is all and all is God. Everything that exists is God. God's an abstraction. So I am a pantheist and you're supposed to just stand there and oh, isn't that wonderful to think you're a but let me tell you, every man that tells me he's a panther, I'll tell you what's wrong with him. He has no conviction of sin. He doesn't believe he's a sinner. He doesn't believe he's damned. Show me a sinner that knows that he's as damned as the worst sinner that ever lived, and I'll show you one where there's a reality of Jesus Christ. He's no fabrication anymore. He is no, again, he is no product of some goofy mind. To that person, Christ is real. When you and I come to a conviction of sin and we're damned as much as any human being that's ever lived, then there's this personal experience. Jesus is a reality. Today Christ says, 
Uh, don't be Gamaliels. Uh, don't be men of indecision. Christ says, I call you. You decide today. Uh, don't delay this thing. Don't stall. Uh, don't hesitate. Uh, don't just simply stand there and do nothing. Christ says, you make a decision today for me and embrace me as Christ and Lord because Christ says, I give you all the evidence that you need. You have all, you have ample, sufficient, all sufficient evidence of that this Jesus business is on the level that is true because Christ in the second place would remind you we've got the New Testament and it certainly gives you and me all the evidence that we need that this Jesus business is reality, it's truth, it is fact. And you may say, well, what do you find in the New Testament that convinces you that this Jesus business is truth, that this is of God, that this is a movement again, this came from heaven, this is reality? Well, because I take the New Testament and I stand at the cross. I stand at the cross of Calvary and I stand at the open tomb. You may say, what do you mean you stand at the cross? When I look at the New Testament, I ask myself, what did Calvary mean? Was it just this, that a pious Jew died on a cross one day? A lot of Jews died on the cross. Was it this, that here was a good man that died, he believed in certain things, and he enunciated certain principles, and he died? Sure, it means that. A lot of them did that, but it, when you turn to the New Testament, now then Christ, what does he say? He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Isaiah said, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. When I stand at the cross, I begin to see something whereby I know that this thing of Calvary was not from the mind of man. I begin to realize that here was God's Son, that God died in my stead, that he was God big enough to be my Savior, who he was born of the Virgin Mary without sin, that when he went to the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, that he bore hell in my stead. He paid the penalty of hell for you and me and all men because he was God and this was a timeless sacrifice. He was slain from the foundation. But that's why I know that this isn't something that was goofed up in the mind of man. I'll never forget in my seminary days when an educated former Hindu came into the classroom and he stood there and he was an Oxford graduate and he was then a Christian. And I said to him, whatever induced you to turn from Hinduism to Christianity? And he stood there joyfully and he said to me, because Hinduism doesn't have a Christ and it doesn't have a cross. The way of salvation, the plan of salvation and Jesus says, this endures for 2,000 years. Since Calvary, the plan of salvation, that Jesus Christ is the way to heaven, that he has done it all. Here is a way for all men, giving hope to the very lowest of us. This is the conviction that this wasn't goofed up in the mind of a goofy man. This thing's on the left. And the fact that he arose from the dead, this is it. Oh, in the days of the Reformation, it became, again, quite scarce at times. Christ, the way to heaven, the great plan of salvation. Here is a plan of salvation that is perfect. Here is a plan of salvation that I know when I see it, that it could never have originated in the mind of man. No other religion has it. A substitution of Christ who is big enough to be our Savior. And because this is perfect and because it brings life and salvation for all men, this is my certainty in this plan of salvation that this Jesus business came out of heaven. You don't need any more certainty than that. He arose from the dead. And it ought to mean this then, that if you and I are going to hear Christ, and we're going to say, I'm not going to delay my decision. I'm going to decide today. I'm going to embrace him. I've got all the evidence I'm going to have, and I've got all I need. That would mean that we'd turn to God, and we'd turn to our Lord, and we'd put our sins in repentance at his feet. 
That's the first thing. What do you mean repent? What do you mean repent? What was wrong with Gamaliel? Gamaliel just didn't have any sins to repent of. Uh, he was a pretty nice fellow. Gamaliel was a Pharisee, you see. There wasn't much to lay at the feet of Jesus. There was no sins that he said, I'm doing something wrong. He thought he was doing everything just fine. But again, the scarlet woman that I met, when she went to the feet of Jesus, she laid down there every dirty thing that she had done, the way she had lived and the language that she had spoken in a diseased body, and laid them all there and told Lord Jesus she was sorry enough to quit. This was repentance, I'm sorry, and I'm not going to deliberately sin again. And then she took a flying leap and grabbed a hold of Jesus, and she said, bless me, I'm going to hold on to you. And let me tell you, when you and I run and grab a hold of him, he sees us with our dirty, stinking sins, and we hold on to him, and we say, forgive me because you died for me, save me. Then he said, if you put your trust in me, I earned a beautiful robe of righteousness for you, it's whiter than snow. It's without blemish. It's without spot. And in that moment when you and I hold on to him for dear life and never let loose, he puts that robe on you and me as he did on this scarlet woman. Then you see our dirty, stinking things don't show anymore. We're whiter than snow and we stand before him as though we had never sinned. This is the assurance. This is the assurance that you and I have when we can throw ourselves on him as the dirtiest sinner that ever lived. Then there comes this inner assurance that we're saved and the inner conviction and assurance that this plan of salvation is certainly from God. Oh, one of the thrills of my life is to explain the plan of salvation to people who don't know the way to heaven. When to get through and to say, if this didn't come out of heaven, you tell me where it came from. Missouri Senate is in convention in Milwaukee right now. They're talking about these very things. When a man says to me that the virgin birth doesn't mean anything, as a seminary professor said to me in, up in Minneapolis just several weeks ago, uh, who cares about the virgin birth? And the answer is, I care. And I want everybody to know, and I care a lot. Why? Because when you do away with the virgin birth of Jesus, then my Savior becomes a sinner. God's way of making him born of a woman without sin because Mary was a sinner like anybody else was by a virgin birth. When you deny it, I care because that makes him a sinner. When you deny the deity of Jesus Christ, I care because if he isn't God, then he wasn't big enough to save you and me and everybody. He didn't save anybody. When Missouri is grappling with some of these things in Milwaukee, these are some of the serious things let me assure you, these are some of the things that all churches are grappling with. But if I can't believe in the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus Christ, I'm going to stop preaching because then there's no way of salvation. And my Lord was a sinner, just like I am. He didn't save anybody. He wasn't God. He was a big imposter. He didn't save anybody. Unless Missouri thinks that, again, it alone has the problem, all churches are fighting that problem. But the inner assurance isn't going to come. Now you and I can say, this Jesus business, this came out of heaven. This is reality. Christ says, don't be Gamaliels. Don't say, uh, delay now. Don't make a decision. Uh, there isn't enough demonstrative proof. Uh, you don't have enough and ample and sufficient evidence of this thing. Jesus says, I've given you all you need because he also reminds us 
about the presence of his church in the world and the presence of the Jew in the world, Jesus says, what greater proof do you want uh, that this Jesus business is of God? It's on the level. This is not the fabrication of men. One day, you know, Jesus called the twelve to him and he said, what are men saying about me? What are they saying I am? Who are they saying I am? One said, well, you're John the Baptist. And some said, you're Elijah. You're another prophet. And then he said, now, what about you guys? What do you think of me? Remember Simon Peter, he said, thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. Then Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ said, I'm going to build my church, and I prophesy the gates of hell shall never close my church. Rather strange that some of our sophisticated in this 20th century are saying we live in the post-Christian era. Did you ever hear such humbug in your life? Humbug to be sure. Christ's church to fail the gates of hell, listen, we've had it for 2,000 years and it must be grown. That's why you're here today. That's why you're listening. I don't think it's dead. It hasn't died and I know it isn't going to die. Christ said it's going to go on till I come again and it's going to go on. And then he said, how about the Jew? Jesus was talking about his own people one day and he said, this generation, this race shall not pass away. It'll all be fulfilled. Christ says, I prophesy this. There will be a Jew till the end of time till I come back. Yes, a little nation of people, you'd have thought they'd have been absorbed long ago. They would have disappeared from the face of the earth. Hitler tried to, in the gas chambers, to try to go ahead and do away with genocide, to do away with the entire race. Six to seven million gone to death in gas chambers. He should have known better. Jesus said, this race shall last till I come. And think of it right now. This small race of people occupying a place in Israel, the attention of the world. You say, why do you believe that this Jesus business is on the level? Because of the Jews and the church and the Old Testament and the New Testament. What more proof do you want? For 2,000 years, this church has gone on. It's going on for 2,000 years. The Jew exists and he's going to go on. Oh, yes, he will be here when Christ comes again. This ought to mean then that because Christ says, I've given you all the corroborative evidence, all the proof, all sufficient in every ample way. Christ says, don't be like Gamaliel. That ought to mean that we will determine when we have embraced him that we will gladly and consider it an honor to suffer shame and disgrace for him as we go out and we bear witness of him. Well, what happened as a result of Gamaliel? He was a good man, Gamaliel. He was an honest man. He was an honorable man. At least you've got to say this for him. He kept them from being put to death. Hadn't been for Gamaliel's speech that day, those 12 men would have been put to death by the Sanhedrin. But they decided to flog them. They were scourged, so each man had to bury his back, and they took a whip, and it had three leather strands, you know, and on the end of each one a piece of iron lug that dug in the flesh and every time they would whack them on the back it was three stripes and they got 13 apiece, that's 39. They weren't supposed to go over 40 because you might kill a man and uh, this man Gamaliel saw that. He saw that and we wonder what about it. Uh, we aren't told anything in scripture but oh, the 12 considered it an honor when they were beaten, they didn't go and burn down a couple of synagogues and burn down the temple and they didn't go and shoot the mayor and they didn't go to the governor and say, look at the kind of treatment we've got. They went out of there, said it's an honor to suffer for him. But what was the influence, all oh, that influence on this man, Gamaliel? We aren't told in scripture, but we are 
told in tradition that he later was baptized by Peter and John, that he became a Christian. Uh, there, was, there was an example. He couldn't, he couldn't explain how 12 men could do what they did. Uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, came down from Tarsus in Cilicia, and he was one of this man's pupils, Gamaliel. He was a fine man. Uh, the Warren Harding family, the parents of our president, Warren Harding, must have thought a lot of him because Warren Harding's middle name, as you know, is Gamaliel. It was Warren Gamaliel Harding. This was a very fine man, and we hope the tradition is true that he embraced Christ. But oh, this thing of suffering shame, going back to the scarlet woman I talked about, she knew what this meant. She knew what it meant because she told me that several times when she had turned to Christ and she went back to some of the men that had helped ruin her and she talked about Jesus, that a couple of them said to her, you old whore, who are you to tell me about Jesus Christ? But she smiled and she didn't get angry. Again, when they laughed at her and they ridiculed her, it was all right. But oh, one day she met the Roman Catholic priest and his rectory was right near the bar where she worked and he knew something of her language, that she was the foulest speaking person in the little village. And she stopped him one day and she says, Father, I want to tell you something. He said, what? She said, tomorrow I'm going to be confirmed in the Lutheran church. And he looked at her, you're going to be confirmed in the Lutheran church. And he shook hands with her and he said, I will never again call you Maisie. That wasn't her name from today on you're going to be Miss Smith. Who knows the influence when you and I go all out for Christ to bear shame and disgrace? Well, she was taken out to the county home, and the superintendent of the county home told me one day, says, like a light coming into a dark place. She was an educated person, but again, she had a good word to speak for Christ, and there was an assurance of salvation when death came. You shall never forget that funeral. We had it in the county infirmary, and across the road was the potter's field. And some of the aged men, they wanted the honor of helping to carry her body over into potter's field. And there we had her service. And I didn't bury her like a dog. No, you know, I thought I heard the angels sing. That afternoon, it was a sunny day. It was in the summer. One of God's children, who again had decided for Christ, was coming home. She had said to me, I'll meet you in heaven. I know that I'm saved in Christ. This was the joy, oh, an influence that we can be for Jesus Christ when we know that this Jesus business, it's on the level, it's true. And oh, to experience personally and to walk with him arm in arm and to be able to sing on the glory road, oh, Master, let me walk with thee in lowly paths of service free. Tell me thy secret, help me bear the strain of toil, the fret of care. And oh, what a walk, what a joy. Because you see, this Jesus business, it's on the level. Jesus says, please, decide today. Amen. The peace of God, which passeth all human understanding, keep and unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting.